down at down in Dallas in the Chafer Chapel. Eight hundred guys all singing all at once, and the place would shake. It was great stuff. Okay, we'd do the whole desk camp and everything. It was great. It was cool. Uh, a lot of fun. So a lot of good memories. Takes me back to some very good days. Um, Sleepless days, but days that I remember nonetheless very well, a lot of fun uh, down there. Uh, Welcome you this morning to Chillicothe Bible Church. I am really excited to be here this morning. I hope you are excited to be here because we are going to open the Word of God together and we're going to see what God thinks about some things. Um, The thing I love about the Bible, and the Bible is an amazing book because in it, we have, believe it or not, the actual words of the, of that the God, the Holy Spirit, wanted written in a book. And you can open it up to any page you want, uh, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 all the way to the end, and you can read and think God's thoughts after him. Now, that's amazing, that the living God would cause his own thinking to be written in a book where we, creatures that he made out of dirt, let's remember, can look at this and go, hmm, wonder what God thinks about this, and read it, and know what the God of the universe who created you and who created me and who designed us to operate and to live in a certain way thinks about various things. And we're going to look here in the book of Acts. Um, You know, we are a Bible church. And that means that we spend a lot of time studying the Bible because we believe in the Bible are the things that God wants us to know, uh, the things that God wants us to speak, and the things that God wants us to live. And so we spend a lot of time on this each week. If you're visiting here with us, um, a big part of our service each week is looking at our Bible and Uh, seeing what God thinks about various things. So we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter uh, chapter 4, and we're going to see a story about Peter and John, some of Jesus' earliest followers, uh, standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Okay, So we're going to go all the way through verse 31. Uh, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other members of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, 
They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you have anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in the book of Acts. Uh, We had... uh, Palm Sunday and Easter in there, and so we took a little detour uh, to celebrate the uh, the coming and the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But this week we're back in Acts, and so since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just refresh your memory of what's just happened. What has just happened is that Peter and John went up to worship at the temple uh, with the other believers, as they always did. Uh, When the earliest uh, believers met together, they met at the temple because they considered themselves to be Jews who had recognized, uh, apart from everybody else, that the Messiah that God had promised to the Jewish people had indeed come. And so they considered themselves to be Jews. And they don't recognize themselves as Christians until later in the book of Acts. But they go up to the temple to worship and to meet with the other believers there at Solomon's Colonnade where they normally worshiped. And on their way there, they see this beggar sitting outside of the eastern gate of the temple, the gate that's called Beautiful. And this guy had sat there for many years every day begging. And he asks them, give us, give me some money. I'm crippled. I'm a beggar. Give me some money. And They say to him, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand and walk. And the guy stands and walks. Amen? Amen. Um, Why did that happen? Because Because Jesus Christ empowered his disciples 
to do acts of power which authenticated their message. And as you can imagine, everybody has seen this guy sitting outside this gate for years. And all of a sudden, they see him not only walking, but jumping up and down and shouting. And so it attracts a crowd, right? Whenever there's a commotion, uh, Kenton could tell you all about this. Whenever there's a commotion at school, the crowd gathers. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, like when there's a fight, when I was in high school, you know, when there was a fight, man, everybody knew it way ahead of the teachers. They were the last people to show up, Right? There's already, the slugging has already happened before the, before the teachers get there, right? But there's a commotion that starts to happen, and Peter and John begin to tell the people, you, st- you see this guy? He used to be crippled. He's not anymore. You know why? Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth came. He was the Messiah, and he empowered us to heal this guy. You need to believe in Jesus. And thousands of people begin to do so. In fact, if you look at the text here, uh, down in verse 4, it says, but many who heard the message believed, and a number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, that number of men, that's the total number of men in the church, in other words, at that time. And since he he just says the number of men is about 5,000, estimates on the total size of the church range from somewhere between maybe 10,000, in other words, if you double that, there's another 5,000 women and children out there to maybe 20 or even 50,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, But Luke just numbers the men, which is about 5,000. So there may be 20,000 believers after this one event. Um, This is a huge opportunity for the gospel. Because who ever heard of a man who was over 40 years old who had been born crippled, getting up and not only walking, but jumping up and down? In other words, he's got perfectly healthy legs. He did not have to go through physical therapy, right? If you're in a cast for, you know, a number of weeks, you're going to have to go to physical therapy just to get your leg back, right? I went turkey hunting this week unsuccessfully. You'll have to turn to some of the men from the men's group on Wednesday to find out exactly the story. Um, but, you know, I sat down under this tree, and, I, you know, you're sitting down there a while, and all of a sudden your legs kind of go to sleep and cramp up. And, you know, if I had shot a turkey, I wouldn't have been able to go up and get him because I couldn't stand. <laughs> okay, butt went numb and everything, right? Um, this guy is actually crippled, and all of a sudden he's instantly healed. And he has full muscular restoration and ability to walk and jump and do everything. Now that is getting healed. And this is an op- and this, so this is a huge opportunity. Well, there's a whole set of religious leaders in the temple who are, by the way, the ones who just a few weeks prior to this uh, conspired with Pilate and the Roman authorities to put Jesus to death. And here is a bunch of guys who followed him, saying, you need to believe in Jesus. Well, this is, this is getting out of control. We've got to squash this thing. There's maybe 20,000 believers at this point, maybe more. This is getting out of control. This is getting out of hand. So they grab these guys, they get the temple guard, and they, they grab these guys, and they throw them in jail overnight. Probably in the Antonia Fortress, uh, which is just on the backside um, of the temple. There's a, there's a fortress there where Herod lives. 
and, on the, and in that there's, there's a prison, and so it's probably there. And they bring them before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are a group of 70 men plus the high priest who are the elders and the governing council of the nation in religious affairs, and a lot of civil affairs too, by the way. Uh, the Sanhedrin did not have the power to execute people, but they did have the power to have people flogged uh, for civil and criminal violations. Uh, they had a lot of authority. Uh, but within and underneath, the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. And, and so this would be like, these guys are getting arrested, and they're being asked to testify before the highest authority in the land. It would be like you and I getting a subpoena in the mail and saying, you have been, your presence is requested before a joint session of Congress. Okay? You think a tax audit is a big deal. That would be a big deal. Uh, this is a high authority. Higher than this, you can go a little bit, but these people are the authority for most, daily, most of daily life. And they call them in. They have authority to throw you into jail with no problem. Uh, the pressure is on. And these two men are two of Jesus' closest friends. These are two of the men who were present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There were three, Peter, James, and John. And these are two of them. These are some of the closest disciples. These are the same men, by the way, who were in the building on the night when Jesus was, was tried by the Sanhedrin. You remember? John, the Gospels tell us, goes in because he's known to the high priest. He goes in and watches the trial. Peter is outside warming his hands by the fire on the night the rooster crows because he's denied the Lord three times. They're going to stand in the same spot where just a few weeks prior to this, Peter cracked under the pressure of a servant girl who said, hey, you're a Galilean, aren't you? Aren't you with Jesus? No, no, not me. Starts cussing to indicate he's really dissociating himself from Jesus. They're going to stand in the same spot. And remember what happened to Jesus wasn't very good, at least the first part, right? We call it Good Friday because of what happened on Sunday, but it wasn't all that exciting, I'm sure, if you were Jesus going through that. And the pressure is on. Are you going to crack, Peter, under the pressure? Or are you going to stand and be like Jesus? Uh, and it's encouraging to me, by the way, that Peter doesn't fold up like a cheap lawn chair right here. <laughs> okay. Uh, he just, he, he says, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. And then you don't get this in English, verse 9. But this is kind of a ironic, sarcastic statement. All right. He says, are you really calling us in here to account for the healing of a crippled guy? We healed a crippled man and you arrested us? What's the deal with that? You know, in what, in what possible legislative environment is that illegal? And then he says this. 
you're being asked for, to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he is healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then here's the kicker. Whom you crucified. In other words, in case you forgot. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Something has happened to Peter. He has been in the hormone jar. Okay, he has got some hair on his chest from a theological perspective. What has happened? He has seen the resurrected Jesus. He has seen the resurrected Jesus, and all of a sudden, he is totally transformed. He is not the wimpy fisherman who kind of just knuckled under, under a few questions around a fire anymore. No, in fact, before the same group of people in the same room where Jesus was condemned, he says, I stand before you as the representative of the Jesus that you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Stand. Wow, he has got bold. And he lays, he lays Jesus' crucifixion at their feet where it belongs. And he also addresses the resurrection square on. He doesn't just talk about Jesus whom you crucified. He talks about, but God raised him from the dead. And he doesn't soft pedal it. He doesn't waffle around. He doesn't try to accommodate it. And he doesn't say, well, I don't really know how he was healed, but, you know, isn't it great that he got better? He doesn't say that. He sticks it in their ear, pretty much. Verse 11, he says, he quotes uh, Psalm 118. Uh, David's psalm here where he says, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. In other words, Jesus is what is what David was talking about. David was a prophet who predicted that the Messiah would come. In fact, he even predicts in Psalm 22 what crucifixion looks like. Several hundred years before crucifixion is even invented, David describes it. And he says, David was talking about Jesus when he talked about the stone that was rejected by the builders. You all are the builders, and you're the one who rejected the one who was to be the capstone. He is the crown. He is the glory of God. He is the greatest thing that ever happened in Israel, and you rejected him. And on top of that, verse 12, he is the only way to God. Now, that may not need clarifying in this church, but it needs clarifying in our culture for sure, where we no longer believe that there is a limited number of options when it comes to being in right relationship with God. Peter says there's a very limited number of options. There's exactly one. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, there's a lot in that verse, okay? It says, first of all, that Jesus is the only way. 
And second of all, that you must be saved. In other words, salvation is non-optional. Either you trust in Jesus, who is the only way, or you go to hell. It is that simple. Again, that's not popular to say that. But that is what is true according to the Bible. Now, you can say the Bible is not true in what it says, but you can't say the Bible says something else. The Bible says there is one way. It's in Jesus Christ, and, and he is the only way by which you must be saved. If you want to experience salvation, eternal life in the presence of God, you must believe in Jesus. It's not optional. And this, this kind of boldness just catches the Sanhedrin just flat-footed. They just don't even know what to say. <laughs> and um, Luke says they were astonished because they realized these are, unle- these are uh, it says, unschooled in my Bible. Um, the, the Greek word literally means unlettered is what it says, okay? And I think what that means is, literally, is that they could not read or write, either one. Now, a lot of people in that day couldn't read or write. In fact, Peter makes reference in uh, in one of his letters to saying, with the help of Silas, I have written to you. It's because Peter couldn't write, probably couldn't read. These guys were illiterate. And yet, they stand before them and speak with power. And why is that? It says they took note that they had been with Jesus. In other words, Jesus gave them the ability to do what they are now doing. By the way, he still does that, just as an aside. (laughs) Okay. Um, When I was in high school... I, I, you know, they say the two greatest fears in the world that people have is public speaking and death. And public speaking is number one, which means that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than the guy doing the eulogy. Okay? And that was me for a lot of years of my life. Uh, even after I became a pastor, when I got up to stand in, a, in front of a congregation like this, teaching Sunday school is one thing, but to stand up in front of a congregation like this and and uh, actually try to deliver the Word of God, I would get sweaty and nearly throw up <laughs> every time, <laughs> okay? And I just pray, oh God, <laughs> here we go again, okay? Now that doesn't happen to me anymore, Why? Because Jesus has worked in my life and has helped me grow and mature in my ability to minister. Um, just like he did with Peter and John. And I suspect just like he's done with, with many of you. As you submit to Jesus and continue to be faithful to what he calls you to do. You have power and people can recognize that you have been with Jesus. And your life has been transformed by that encounter. And so they then have a meeting because they're just like, mm, what do we do? You know, it's like when my kids do something totally strange and we don't know what to do. We say, okay, go to your room. <laughs> okay, they think they're being punished. No, they're giving us time to figure out how to respond, right? Um, we have a council meeting, Karen and I, over the table. What do we do now? Okay. Um, 
and and we figure it out and we call them back in okay now here's what we decided <laughs> all right they're in there sweating what are we going to do what are mom and dad going to do you know we're going to take away webkins for a week or something you know horrible like that but um but they say they bring in peter and john again and they say now we're going to tell you something we don't want this to spread among the people and you're spreading it and so you are not to speak and notice how they say this in fact i'll read it called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of jesus but before that he says luke quotes them and he says warn these men not to speak to excuse me to speak no longer to anyone in this name they won't even pronounce jesus name and Luke says, he just clarifies for us, you know, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's Luke's summation. But when they actually spoke and Luke quoted them, the high priest won't even use the name of Jesus because he doesn't want even to be associated with someone who speaks in the name of Jesus. And he says, don't speak anymore in this name. Okay? Um. But now look at what Peter says back. And this is a great response. He says, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Because we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Uh, you know, sometimes I've had conversations with my kids. And, they'll say, and I'll tell them, you know, like we'll be riding in the car and... Things will get loud, as they do with four kids. Uh, and we'll say, look, guys, you, we're all in the same vehicle, okay? This is an enclosed space. You've got to tone it down a little, you know, keep it down to a dull roar at least. And, and they're like, but we can't help it. We have to do this, you know? It's like they're just possessed by something, and they have to just start shouting, you know, we can't help it. And that's essentially Peter's response, we have been with Jesus. We have seen him teach. We have seen him act with power in healing and casting out demons and walking on water and stilling a storm and, frankly, getting raised from the dead. And so we can't help it. It has so transformed and touched us in who we are and has so changed us that we can't help it. We have to talk about Jesus. So you judge between you between us and, and you whether it's right in the sight of God to, to do what you're saying. But we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Why? Because we can't help it. We have to talk about him. He's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. We can't help it. And by the way, this is, this is the passage to turn to. Uh, again, this is just an aside here. There are times when it is right to disobey the civil authorities for the sake of obeying God. This is exhibit A on where it's right to do that. If they ever pass a law in this country, like they have in China or other places around the world, that says it is against the law to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, you may not share the gospel with other people, which is what Peter and John have just been doing. Then what you will have to say is this. 
Judge for yourself rather whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than him. But as for me, I can't help speaking about what I have seen and heard. In other words, lock me up, torture me, put me under the waterboard, do whatever it is you're going to do, but I can't help speaking about what I have seen and heard. And I'm going to speak about Jesus no matter what. You can kill me. You can lock me away. If you lock me in prison, you better lock me away from all the other prisoners because I'll tap it on the wall through to the other prisoners. We're going to do whatever we have to because we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is how God intends for us to behave. That when it all comes down and even your life is threatened, either knuckle under or don't talk about and don't talk about Jesus and live or talk about Jesus and maybe die. Well, I'm going to talk about Jesus and die then. But I'm going to stand on my feet before God and not live on my knees in front of you. They get back, they get released, and Peter and John go immediately back to church. They have a meeting. And they say, y'all, we need to pray. Gather around. And that must have been some kind of prayer meeting. You know, 15,000, 20,000 people show up to pray. Uh, I would have liked to have been there at that. And it says that they, they heard this. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they address him, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They recognize God for who he is. And they proclaim his sovereignty and his power. And then they address to him a scriptural prayer. Do you know you can do that? I don't know if you know that, but you can do that. You can take prayers out of the Bible. Sometimes it's tough for me in certain situations to know how I should pray. And so I can read my Bible and pray that back to God. And get some good words that are there. And they take, they take a psalm here from David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Uh, this is from Psalm chapter 2. And this whole psalm is about the rule and the sovereignty of God over all the rulers and authorities and nations and peoples of this world. Um, the point of Psalm 2 and the point of the prayer here that they pray is the recognition of the fact that things in the world happen because God allows them to happen. And that at the moment that God decides, thus far you may go and no further, that is the where it ceases. And so they're calling out to God for his will and his power to act on their behalf. Because his will and his power determine what happens in our world. He says, remember, see, he says here, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? Why is it in vain? Because ultimately the Lord is in control. When God makes his decision, no one can overrule him. There is no higher court. There is no greater source of power. He is the final appeal. 
And in fact, they, they pray later about, about Herod and Pontius Pilate. They met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they thought they got victory over Jesus, didn't they? They put him to death, after all, right? But what happened? But they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. In other words, when they killed Jesus, was that a big shock to God? No. He had planned before the foundation of the world to crucify the Son. The Lamb was slain before the world was made. And they're doing, they're carrying out God's will even in the midst of their evil. God knew about in advance the wickedness that they would do and he planned around it to bring good out of it. In fact, the ultimate good that has ever happened was the death of Jesus. God's love is more clearly manifested in the death of Jesus than in anything else he's ever done or ever will do. Because it's by the death of Jesus that you and I are cleansed of our sin and enabled to be in right relationship with God. And I think it's very significant that they pray this way, by the way. Because in recognizing God's sovereign rule and his ability to bring good out of the evil that men do, they are telling God, look, I trust you regardless of what happens. And they bring Jesus up because they look at him and they go, you allowed Jesus to die. In fact, you not only allowed it, you planned for it, purposed it, decided it a long time ago. And it was in accordance with your will that Jesus was crucified. What are they implying? If I get crucified, I know that you have a good plan and purpose, and I trust you in it. And I'm going to call out to you and ask that you give me, says here, speak your word with great boldness. In other words, what are they doing? They are saying, I am, Father, I pray you will give me even more opportunities. Verse 29 and 30 say this. I will pray you'll give me even more opportunities to stand up for you and to share the gospel. I pray that you will authenticate, as you have done with Peter and John, our ministry with acts of power empowered by the Holy Spirit because how come Jesus how come John and, and, and Peter got such a great opportunity to share the gospel because their message was authenticated by the thing that God did through them and the miracle that was done authenticated the message of the man so that there was a consistency they see that the, it's not just words, that those words have power. And so they say, give us all this power to do as Peter and John have done. And we trust you no matter the outcome. And if they kill us all, we know it would be because your good purpose and plan is at work to bring out a great victory out of it. And God, and God answered their prayer. I think this is so cool. I mean, this is just cool. You've got to read this. Look at this here. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
And how do we know? Because they spoke the word of God boldly. What did they pray for? They prayed, Father, we trust you no matter what happens to us. They, they prayed, give us boldness to speak your message. And God shook the building to say, I heard you. And then they went out filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. Now, I think that would have been ultra cool to be there. In fact, I think it would be great if God would shake our building right now. <laughs> okay? Um, I'm ready for any time that happens, okay? Uh, I think we'll have a spontaneous prayer meeting right after that, <laughs> okay? Just to give thanks to God. I'm ready for that to happen. But he, here's the thing. Even if God doesn't shake the building, God hears our prayers. And the same God who answered theirs will answer ours. So let me just suggest here a few things that I want you to get out of this, all right? There's a lot in this. I mean, we could spend two months on this passage. This is great stuff. Let me just suggest a few things here, okay? If you, if you, and, and just honestly, you know, I try to give three or four or five sometimes things to apply out of a particular text, but trust me on this. If you just get one thing every week, that's 52 things in a year, okay? I, and if you would put one a month into your life, your life would totally change. If you would allow Scripture to permeate your life to the level of one point of application a month that you, that you started doing from there into the rest of your life, your life would be totally different a year from now than it is today. And 20 years radically different than it is today. So if you just get one of these things and drive it home in your soul, that will be a huge victory in your spiritual life, okay? But I'm going to give you three, okay? So you can pick your favorite, <laughs> all right? But get one of these truths and drive it home in your soul. First, first thing is this, that sharing the gospel is not optional. It is central to what it means to be a Christian. Let me say that again. Sharing the gospel is not optional. It is central to what it means to be a Christian. One of the really weird things about the church in America, as you study sociologically some of the phenomenon about the American church, is that we don't do anything with the religious freedom that we have. We have complete freedom to share the gospel. We have complete freedom to meet publicly. We have complete freedom to publish as much as we want to publish in whatever forum we want to publish it in. We have complete freedom to tell people in our workplace, in our school, in our home, on our street, in our neighborhood, everything that God has done and will do for us. And very often, the people that we talk to about all the great things that God is doing and has done are the people that are already in the kingdom. And you can do that in China. You can do that in Saudi Arabia. 
But here we have freedom to proclaim the gospel, and we don't use it. Very often, we don't use it. And I think it's, it's the reason that we don't very often do that is because we either give in to fear. What will people think? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? What if I get fired? You know what? If you get fired for sharing the gospel, then get fired. And have the blessing and the reward of God. Don't be obnoxious about it, okay? Don't, don't necessarily do it when you're supposed to be working. But if you can get fired for sharing the gospel with somebody you work with, then get fired and have God's praise and reward. Even in this economy, there'll be another job eventually, okay? The other thing that people sometimes think is that it's optional. Well, it's just for the super spiritual. It's for the pastor. It's for the elders. It's for the deacons and deaconesses. It's for the missionaries. We pay people to do that. I subcontracted my evangelism responsibilities. <laughs> okay? I mean, good leadership is delegating authority, right? I just delegated mine. Okay? No. It's for every person to share the gospel. Right? Um, because look at this, look at your Bible here. It says they all gathered and they all prayed for boldness to speak the word of God. And they all spoke the word of God with great boldness because God answered their prayer. There are several alls in there, okay? And all of y'all and all of these people up here need to do that. To be obedient to God. Because sharing the gospel is not optional, it's essential. Okay? Number two, God is still sovereign. Amen? You might be out of a job. You might uh, have a terrible chronic illness. You might have uh, a difficult marriage. You might have a child that breaks your heart. You might have members of your family that you have difficulty relating with. You might have any number of terrible, difficult situations. But you know what? God is still sovereign. He still rules. He still has complete control over everything that happens. And there is nothing that comes into your life, I'll assure you, without passing through his fingers. And he loves you. And God knows how to give good gifts to his children. And very often you'll encounter a situation as you go through life where you have to pray like Joseph. You intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. And I trust God to do the right thing in my life. And I'm going to trust God even when it hurts, even when I can't see the answer, even when I can't see how this is a purpose that God would have, even when I can't see if there's anything good coming out of this for anybody, including me. That in spite of, and even though this hurts, I'm going to trust God because God is sovereign. And the people who rule are in, in our authority are the people God has put there. And if I hate my boss, he's the boss God gave me. 
And if I hate my spouse, he's the spouse that God gave me, and I'm going to trust God and do the right thing regardless. God is still sovereign. Last thing, can you stand more than anything else as your pastor? If I had a wish that I could just, if I had like a, a, a you know, magic lamp or a wand or something that I could wave, that a gift that I could give every person here, what I would give you is a faith that will stand. That will stand the test. That when the pressure is on, that you don't collapse under the pressure, but you rise to the occasion. That you would have boldness. And from a, you know, some, you know, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but, you know, some biblical theological testosterone to you. Okay? Um, somehow that you would be a person that has the ability that when you get challenged, and you will get challenged, any of you students that go to a public school, you get challenged. Amen, you get challenged. I went to a public school all the way to college. And I had people that mocked me every day through junior high and high school because I was one of those Jesus guys, okay? I was one of the guys who was praying with about 25 of his friends before school every morning. Are you going to get made fun of? Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you going to maybe undergo some consequences at work because you're the Jesus freak? Maybe. Are you going to get challenged? Yeah. If your faith sticks out enough, somebody's going to try and pound it down for you. Or when you go off to college, you're going to have some professor who's going to mock you for being so primitive that you believe that a, that a crucified Galilean peasant was actually the son of God. But however much the wind blows, we ought to have steel in our spine so that it doesn't bend us. Because the things that we believe here are true. Jesus Christ of Nazareth really was, really is, more importantly, the Son of God who came in the flesh, who lived a perfect sinless life who died in my place and in your place to take away our sin, and who was raised from the dead on Easter morning 2,000 years ago, proving that he is God and that what he said was true and that those who trust in him would follow him in death and resurrection into the adoption as sons and daughters in the very presence of God, and to be regarded before God at the same level as Jesus. That when Jesus looks at you and looks at me, he sees someone who, as an adopted child, has the same status as his natural begotten son. And so if I had a wish as a pastor, I would give everybody a faith like that. It says, when the day of evil comes, when the pressure's on, when somebody says, what have you been doing over here? That you are able to go on record 
and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't care if you mock, I don't care if you make fun, I don't care if you reject him as a fool. What he said is true, and he proved it. And I will stand with Jesus. And if I die, then I die. If you put me in prison, then put me in prison. But I am going to stand with Jesus. And you stand. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father,